Hi, friends. This is Anxiety, an anxious person's podcast made by anxious people. My name is Ceci. And I'm Shadow. Today, we are going to spill the tea on two infamous celebrity deaths. We're getting into the details of the untimely demise of Kurt Cobain and Sharon Tate. Sit back, relax, and enjoy a big cup of tea with us. Okay, listeners, as a major fan of podcasts myself, I realize that the subject of celebrity deaths has been covered a trillion times. However, we are honored to give you our take on these controversial deaths. This may not be the only episode you hear from us on this topic. It definitely won't be. There are so many insane cases to cover. I'm so stoked to get started. We hope you guys will enjoy some true crime storytelling from anxiety. Let's get into it then. As a disclaimer, I know Kurt Cobain's death was a suicide and not necessarily true crime. I'm just a huge Nirvana fan. Let me give you a little bit of Kurt's background before we start on his death. Kurt Cobain is widely known as the frontman of the grunge band Nirvana. We often hear that he was considered the spokesman for Generation X and is still considered to be one of the most influential musicians in alternative rock today. Grunge took the world by storm following the release of Smells Like Teen Spirit, Nirvana's most famous song, which at the time was also considered an angsty teenager's anthem. Kurt Cobain was born on February 20th in 1967 in Aberdeen, Washington, where he was raised by his parents. His family has an immense musical background and Cobain was showing promising musical talent by only two years old. He started singing at this age and was playing musical instruments such as the piano by four. That's really impressive. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. To be showing talent like that at such a young age. He was like playing piano and singing songs about going to the park and stuff like that. It's pretty neat. Shows what kind of, you know, career he was going to end up having. Right. Anyway, he was known as an eager, ambitious kid up until his parents' divorce when he was only nine years old. At this point, he became more defiant and came to hate adults and mainly authority. He was very bitter about his parents' separation and never really recovered from that. I feel like a lot of people are that way. Yeah. Sometimes when, you know, parents get divorced, it's... uh, It's life-changing. You know, it just, it ends everything that you ever knew. Yeah, it really impacts the children in the relationship. It does, and sometimes they really don't get over it. He maintained his defiance through high school. At one point, he befriended a gay boy and in an interview said that he didn't like people and found that he was left alone if people thought he was gay. He said, quote, I started being really proud of the fact that I was gay, even though I wasn't, end quote. He even started spray painting God is gay on trucks all over Aberdeen just to piss people off. Isn't that so punk rock? (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty funny. And that he was willing to embrace something that a lot of people were kind of afraid to at the time. Yeah, he had a big problem with homophobes. He's even said like, no, I'm not gay, but I wish I was just to piss the homophobes off. Like, I think that's pretty, pretty great. I think that's pretty (laughs) radical. Definitely. Like I said, so punk rock. Kurt was initially in the custody of his father following their divorce until he couldn't handle Kurt's behavior and he ended up going to live with his mom. Kurt dropped out of high school after finding out that he didn't have enough credits to graduate. At this point, his mom gave him an ultimatum, find a job or get out. Within a week, he found his clothes and belongings on the doorstep. Can you imagine that? Like going through the heartbreak of not finishing school and then she told him to get a job and gives him a week to to do it. It must have been a lot for him. I'm sure it was. Facing homelessness, Cobain found himself staying with friends, sneaking into his mom's basement, and living under a bridge along the Wishko River. His experience there inspired the lyrics to Nirvana's song, Something in the Way. Are you a big fan of Nirvana? You know, I actually haven't spent a lot of time listening to them, so this is all new to me. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I believe Something in the Way is on the album, Nevermind. Such a great album. And that's the album that 
you know, blew up Nirvana. They did have one album before, which was pretty good, but uh, Nevermind was super mainstream. And fun fact, Cobain didn't really like it for that reason. His first album, Bleach, was more of the sound that he wanted. Mm-hmm. But he ultimately found the best sound in utero, his third and last album. So he only made a total of three albums? Yeah. And then there's the Unplugged album, too. They're performing it on MTV. Oh, okay. That one's really good, too. He started his first band, Fecal Matter, in early 1985, which ended up disbanding in 1986. What a name for a band, Fecal yeah, Matter. Isn't that fantastic? I think I heard somewhere or read somewhere that he was in a couple of other small bands, but didn't really stick around with those. Okay. Yeah, and Fecal Matter basically practiced covers of songs with some original content, but they mostly did covers. Cobain eventually got a job at a resort and got an apartment. He met Chris Novoselic while hanging around people in the punk rock music scene around Olympia and Seattle. After some time, Kurt managed to convince Novoselic to form a band with him. Kurt developed an interest in religion at this time and was looking into Judaism and Buddhism. This is where the name Nirvana originated. Cobain described Nirvana as, quote, freedom from pain, suffering, and the external world, end quote, which was in alignment with everything that punk rock represented. At some point during his stay with his dad, he had actually sent him away to live with a friend and they were highly religious. They were extremely Christian and he did end up practicing with him, but eventually renounced it. Right. I'm sure that that kind of religion is more strict versus yeah. Buddhism, which is more spiritual. And Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he, he has dabbled in religion before this time. The rest is history. While Nirvana did go through multiple drummers, Kurt found Dave Grawl, who plays on the albums Nevermind and In Utero. They really blew up after the release of Smells Like Teen Spirit and Cobain's mental health took a considerable dive. He didn't enjoy fame or attention. He felt that Nirvana's success delegitimized everything he'd sung about. I could see that, you know, he's like super anti-authority. He has this humility about him. That's what everybody says about him too, is that he was extremely humble, which is super rare to find in rock stars. While he did want to get his word out there and, you know, spread his music He never wanted to be as famous as he became. And he blew up. They blew up. Right. I mean, they still have fans till this day. They are timeless. Oh, yeah. I am a hardcore Nirvana fan, you know. Exactly. (laughs) You're proof of that. And Kurt died like three or four months before I was even born. Still make me sad. That is sad. Because you always want to grow up and in hopes of seeing this person perform live or make more music that you can enjoy. Exactly. Now that we know his background, we can get into his ultimate demise. Of course, we can't talk about Kurt Cobain without bringing up Courtney Love. There are accounts that claim they met as early as 1989, but weren't seriously involved until 1991. Their courtship was swift, with Courtney becoming pregnant with their daughter, Frances Bean Cobain, only four months into their relationship and getting married only a few months after that. So they moved fast. They moved really, really fast. Courtney Love is actually the person who introduced Kurt Cobain to heroin. Really? Yeah, she was like a hardcore punk rocker and she did all kinds of drugs and he was already doing drugs. He smoked weed for the first time at 13 years old and he continued ingesting marijuana for a while and then he started taking a lot of lsd wow so yeah prior to meeting her he was doing more of that kind of stuff uh, maybe taking pills but hadn't hadn't turned to heroin yet it seems like they lived like a fast and hard lifestyle anyway so oh, they definitely did they uh they were constantly partying right which a lot of these celebrities do you know 
Yeah, I mean, there are so many rock and roll artists who have died from drug overdoses, you know. It's not an uncommon thing. It's still not uncommon to this day, unfortunately. No, it's not. It's tragic that it's still happening. Oh, it really is. So Kurt wanted to give up music to focus on fatherhood, but he ended up staying with Nirvana. Courtney Love introducing Cobain to heroin was the beginning of an addiction that sent Cobain into a downward spiral. He had an undiagnosed stomach issue that caused him a lot of pain every day and claimed that heroin was the only thing that helped. That's really sad. Oh my goodness, you have no idea. I guess at that point he couldn't, I don't know if the doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with him, but um, they had prescribed him pain medication and all kinds of different things. And actually not too long before his suicide They had finally found a medicine for him that cleared up that issue completely. Oh, that's really unfortunate then. Yeah, it really is. Interestingly enough, in the March of 1994, Cobain was hospitalized in Rome from an overdose. He was in a coma for a few days. Courtney claimed that he took 50 roofie pills with a champagne chaser. Oh my god. Yeah, I guess he was unconscious for some time. I I couldn't find in my sources exactly for how long, but yeah. (laughs) I would imagine that's not even like an overdose, but that's death. I don't know how you you would think so. 50 pills? Yeah. You know, you always hear about roofies, the date rape drug, right? One pill is enough to put you out for the night. Yeah, to put you in a coma pretty much. So 50? I don't think you're going to wait. Yeah. Here's the thing about that, though. Courtney claimed that he took 50 pills, but the doctors say it was maybe around 20. That's weird. The doctors ended up concluding that it was an accidental overdose. So they didn't think that it was he was trying to commit suicide. Although that is how Courtney has spun it forever, that he that was his first attempt at suicide. There has been a lot of speculation that Courtney roofied Cobain herself. Really? So that's interesting. Yeah. When you you think about that. I mean, why would he take 20 pills? If you want to get fucked up, you would think you would only take one or two. I would think that's all you would need, but Whenever you hear about these celebrities that are into heavy drug use and whatnot, you wonder if maybe they think they can handle it and they go overboard. Yeah, I don't know. It's pretty crazy. It's sad, too. Because of their status, they have access to all these kinds of drugs. Exactly. It's dangerous. Only a few weeks after that incident, Love called the cops because Cobain locked himself in a bathroom with a gun and a bottle of pills, claiming that he was going to kill himself. The police arrived and confiscated his firearms for his own protection, although he claims that he was never going to do it. I read this article and it was super weird. She said that she was thinking about cheating on him and somehow he knew it, even though she hadn't mentioned a word about it. And he was going to kill himself because she was going to cheat on him. That article is very confusing to me. I'm like, what? So now this girl's psychic? (laughs) It sounds like a very toxic relationship. Yeah, super toxic. But there are a lot of people that claim, you know, they were rock stars. They were punk rockers. They didn't care, blah, blah, blah. So who knows? Who really knows what happened? Nobody will know. Right. And I, I don't like that because I feel like they glamorize situations where it really shouldn't be, Yeah, you know? Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, just because you're a rock star doesn't mean that you and your spouse should be having drug-fueled parties. So it's just very odd. I agree. That's kind of why I mentioned it, you know? Like, I don't know. I wish we could go back in time and find out what really happened. After the bathroom incident, Courtney planned an intervention with some of his closest friends. And right before this, or I believe maybe right after, he had asked one of his friends, Dylan Carlson, I 
believe he's a music pro- he was a music producer at the time he asked him to purchase a shotgun for him because he was afraid if he did it would get confiscated and he claimed that he wanted to use it against burglars dylan said that he was in good spirits he seemed like he was okay and uh he believed him when he said he was just going to use it against burglars so he did end up purchasing the shotgun for him and he offered to keep it until cobain was out of rehab and for whatever reason Kurt Cobain wanted to take it home and just, you know, have it there for safekeeping. So like that was a big red flag. He did that right before he was going to go to rehab because he did end up agreeing. He agreed to fly from Seattle to Exodus Recovery Center in L.A. on March 30th, 1994. Yeah, you know, that's kind of a suspicious thing to do right before you're due in rehab so yeah and the thing is you know when somebody goes into a detox program you're there for a set amount of days so i'm sure they all just figured oh he'll be there and he'll be safe and we don't got to worry about it right the very next night he told the attendings at the recovery center that he was going to step out for a cigarette and he ends up jumping over six feet from a balcony and fleeing back to seattle oh so he escapes from the rehab Yeah, he didn't even last two days. Oh, no. He checked in on March 30th, and he was gone the night of April 1st. You'd think they would have some kind of fail-safe for people that straight up try and escape. Yeah, you would. (laughs) Or even like a guard doing rounds or, you know, whatever. Yeah, some kind of security. Exactly. So from here, there are a few like random sightings of Cobain. He had neighbors who saw him just walking around the neighborhood, and they said that he looked horrible. He was wearing like a heavy coat in the middle of April and, you know, the beginning of April. It was warm. There was no reason for him to be wearing it. Like, I guess there was just a few weird sightings of him in the days following his escape from rehab. So he was just being weird outside. Yeah, I guess there was a taxi who came and picked him up and drove him to a gun store to get ammo. Just a couple of weird things like that. A few days into his disappearance from the recovery center, Courtney hired a PI to locate Cobain. And for whatever reason, she claimed that the PI didn't need to check their home in Seattle because she didn't think that he'd be there. Which, why wouldn't you anyway? Exactly. Wouldn't you want to look everywhere for him? Exactly. Even the places you think he wouldn't be, like, what's the harm in that? Yeah, especially because Courtney even says herself that that she loved to go out and party and all that. But most of the time, Cobain just wanted to like do heroin, sit in his apartment, paint and make music. So my point is, if that's what he enjoyed was being home, why wouldn't the first place they look be his home? Exactly. Because he's known for liking to be there. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, red flag right there. After several days of no word from Kurt, his friends and family began to think the worst. He would end up being found dead in the greenhouse of his Seattle home on April 8th by an electrician who went to install a security system. So that's actually another thing that's super fishy about his death. He originally claimed to want the shotgun for security purposes, and then he clearly had called to get a security system installed. So why make all these plans if you're planning on committing suicide? Yeah, exactly. It's just weird that like you would even have somebody come install security if you don't even plan on being there anymore. I mean, you're right. I don't know why you would make all these plans and then just be gone. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I listened to the Kurt Cobain episode from the podcast Morbid, but they mentioned that Courtney was famous for jotting down like to-do items on post-it notes or memo notes. And one of her memo notes said, get arrested. And conveniently, she got arrested on the day he killed himself, I believe, or the day after. 
or before or something like that. I need to check the source, but she uh-huh. did get arrested. Like she had an alibi. She was in jail. <laughs> That's a hell of a bucket list to get arrested. And on the yeah. day of the suicide of your yeah. spouse. Who knows? So like I said, he was found dead in, in the greenhouse on April 8th, but he had apparently committed suicide by a shotgun blast to the mouth three days before. That's eerie. Yeah, so he actually died on April 5th, only a few days after escaping the recovery center. He was actually still wearing his wristband. It makes you wonder if he would still be here if he didn't escape the facility and continued his treatment. Yeah, you who know? knows? A lot of people let him down. Yeah, I feel like that too, but he he was in a lot of pain his whole life from having that undiagnosed stomach issue and just feeling so let down by adults and the world. I can understand that. Yeah. He was just, oh, he was so depressed and he poured a lot of his energy into his music, which is why it's so amazing. But I think there were always signs, you know, that he wasn't going to make it for very long. And even Dave Grohl says that too. I guess it's sad that some people have such a deep set sadness in their heart that they can't get rid of it. And that's the end result. Yeah, and they figure that, you know, it would be easier to just end it all. You don't got to feel that pain anymore. Right, which is tragic. He had his daughter to live for. And you know what? Courtney and Kurt actually had a nanny for her because they they didn't stop doing drugs after she was born. That's sad. So she didn't even get to experience like a real childhood. No, not at all. There's actually an article in Vanity Fair where Courtney admits to doing heroin while she was pregnant. And she ended up renouncing that, saying that, no, she wasn't doing heroin, but they did get Frances Bean taken away from from them, like, as soon as she was born because of that. Yeah, I feel like she was telling the truth, and then she realized- I feel like it, too. (laughs) The backlash of it. She's like, oh, I better retract that statement. Yeah, It's like, no, you already told your truth. It's out there. Already did the damage. It's too late for you. So because of that shotgun blast to his mouth, he was only identifiable by his fingerprints. Can you imagine? That's horrible. What's really interesting, just because I brought up fingerprints, the police actually didn't didn't lift fingerprints initially. And when they went to finally do it, none of them were usable. It was like those fingerprints were partially wiped away. That's also something suspicious. Oh, yeah. I mean, like they couldn't even find a full Kurt Cobain fingerprint on that on it. Hmm. I guess this you know, kind of gives way to all the conspiracy theories surrounding his death with all these. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Details. Another thing, yeah, exactly. Another thing that's interesting is he had filed to have the contents of his will transferred into his daughter's name only weeks before, and he didn't have a chance to sign them by the time they were drawn up. So who did it go to? Courtney? It went to her. It was in her name. Yeah. Oh, no. It was in her name and he went to go get it transferred to Francis. He did. And by the time the papers were drawn up, he he didn't have a chance to sign it because he was dead. It was also rumored at the time that he was planning on divorcing Courtney. What makes that interesting is that they had signed a prenup before they had gotten married. And that was because Courtney thought that she was going to be more famous than him one day. And so did he. That's kind of a backfire on her part, considering that he ironically is more popular than she ever will be. Oh, yeah. Till this day. She's popular because of him. Exactly. That's the only claim that she has to fame is that she was with Kurt Cobain. Yeah, exactly. And it's just really interesting that he was planning on divorcing her. And she clearly wasn't going to get any money because of the prenup. And he was in the middle of transferring, you know, his assets to his daughter and his will. And all of a sudden he's dead before that can be finished. 
So I can see why it could fit into a lot of conspiracies because that is very odd. All these circumstances under his death. Yeah, it really is. Even, you know, he has a suicide note. And if you guys want to look that up, you should. The only parts about Courtney in that letter, it looks like they weren't written by him. The impressions of the words were different from the rest of the note. You know, like how hard you press down on the pen when you're writing. Yeah. So that was that was different. And I got to check the source for this, but I'm pretty sure at one point she was caught by a friend trying to copy handwriting. Oh, really? Yeah. That's interesting. And, you know, it, it really it, is. If you're with somebody for a certain amount of time, you develop their habits, you see how they do things. And, you know, maybe she took advantage of that. Who knows? It's it really seems like she did. Another suspicious circumstance around his death. When, he, when his autopsy was performed, they found lethal amounts of heroin in his bloodstream. And he, it's speculated that he definitely should have overdosed by that amount of heroin. But it's only speculation because we don't know what levels of heroin he may have been able to handle. So it's really hard to tell if that would have affected him that way. But also, because of how much heroin he had in his system, he shouldn't have been able to prop a large shotgun the way he did and pull the trigger. Right. He would be almost incoherent, you'd think. He should have been incoherent. You know, like they say the effects of heroin are incredible, like you get this crazy high. So why would he even commit suicide while experiencing such an incredible high? That's true. Yeah. That's another thing that makes no sense. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense at all. So he should have died from how much heroin he had in his bloodstream. And if he didn't, then he should have been feeling so good that he wouldn't even be considering suicide. Yeah, the only thing I think of would be after is when the high was gone, but... He didn't even have time to process through his body yet. It was still there. It's all very fishy. Yeah, it's all very circumstantial. Yeah, exactly. But it was immediately ruled a suicide. That's why there wasn't an investigation, really. So yeah, that's Kurt Cobain's whole story, pretty much. You know, she still makes money off of his royalties and... And I don't think she should, to be honest, because like she helped his heroin habit. Yeah, exactly. Something interesting I found when researching for this case, I listened to two very popular podcasts. One is Morbid, a true crime podcast. I've referenced that a couple of times now. And I listened to Generation Y's episode on Kurt Cobain. Morbid was very anti-Courtney. They basically had the same conversation that we have, you know, like there's a lot of suspicious circumstances and all fingers point at Courtney. Whereas Generation Y, they were really defending Courtney and claiming that there was a lot of misogyny. Oh, um, they were defending her? Oh yeah, they were defending her. They were saying, oh yeah, you know, everybody just looks at the woman and go, oh yeah, it it was the crazy wife. She killed him. That kind of thing. And they're saying, you know, she was just a concerned wife and blah, blah, blah. When she was calling the cops and calling his overdose a suicide attempt, you know? Yeah. People were just saying she's a crazy wife. And they're like, no, she's a caring one. She blah, blah, blah. They were just glamorizing Courtney and her like rock star lifestyle, you know? Kind Which... of just saying that like, oh, that, that that's Courtney, you know? Kind of just like, oh, that's what she would do because they're punk rockers and it's not that weird. And I don't know. You know, though, at some point, she had some kind of responsibility as as his spouse. And I think that she was just as much as a bad influence as anything else that he had in his life. Because if he truly had somebody to lead him in the right direction, I feel like he would have gotten help. 
you know, he would have stuck through rehab, maybe. I mean, somebody to help him with the pain because she was just helping him escape the pain. Yeah, she was. She was just getting him into the same bad shit she was into, essentially. So I guess we'll never really know, huh? Whether it was an actual suicide or homicide, (laughs) unfortunately. Yeah, I guess not. Just everything that's surrounding his death is very odd. It's still classified as a suicide, but there are thousands of people every year who urge like the Seattle police to reopen the case. It seems back then it would be harder to prove certain situations than it would be now with social media, text messages, stuff like that. Yeah. You know, for example, The trial between Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, we get to see their texts between each other out in the open. And you kind of get to see a look at their relationship. So you wonder if we had that technology back then, what we would see from the celebrities. Yeah, that's Kurt Cobain. Maybe one day we'll get more answers. Probably not. Maybe if technology advances and we can find out. And see if it happens while we're still alive. Yeah, true. (laughs) All right. So tell me about Sharon Tate. Okay. Imagine you're in the midst of the 1960s, where experimental drug use, spiritual journeys, and free love was rampant during the ongoing conflict in Vietnam. The war was making people think more progressively and resulted in protests. One of the most famously is Martin Luther King, who was actively giving speeches along with other prominent figures of this time for opposition of war. On the glamorous side of the 60s, you saw rising stars and hopeful aspirants who left home to seek what Hollywood had to offer. You saw names like Marilyn Monroe, who left a profound impact on the image and sexuality of celebrities and women at the time. One of these women, though, beautiful and innocent, her career that held so much promise was tragically taken from her on August 9th, 1969. Sharon Tate is often lost amongst the names you hear when you read about her story in her life. So while it is important to tell all the story, I won't be focusing on certain aspects of it. Who is Sharon Tate? Who is she to these people that took everything from her? You know, to be completely honest, I hadn't even thought about it that way. Whenever I hear Sharon Tate, I automatically think Manson family. Yeah, that's what I think too. And I feel like that kind of does a disservice to her story. I'm sure a lot of people feel that way. Right. As just the murder victim from the Charles Manson family. Yeah, it's a horrible way to be remembered instead of who you really were. For the people that knew her, described her as having a natural affinity for acting and even modeling. Sharon had this sweet and gentleness with the people she was around. So, of course, people were drawn towards her, not just for her beauty, but as well as her nature. It sounds like she was a really good person. Yeah, she seemed like the non-typical person that you would expect trying to go to Hollywood. Very conceited, full of themselves. Yeah, she sounds like the opposite. That's amazing. Sorry for interrupting. Sharon was born in Dallas, Texas in 1943. Her father was an officer and often found themselves moving a lot to wherever he was stationed. Switching schools and constantly having to make new friends must have been tough already. While her father was in the military, all she had was her mom. This would be the first instance where we see Sharon step into the Does that mean that she had daddy issues? Her father was kind of strict, you know, of course, being in the military, you have to. Okay. He was very protective. So that makes sense. I guess that would be hard no matter how you look at it. Yeah. As a man in the military, only having two girls. I mean, you can imagine. Sharon's mother had started bringing her to beauty contests as young as her sister can remember, which led her to wanting to branch out more and maybe getting to modeling. Her father was worried because of the attention the photos would bring. 
and the many suitors that followed. And this actually was sparked because he saw her modeling photo of her straddling a missile. And that's when he realized that she was actually becoming a woman. Oh my goodness. I bet that was really hard for him. Having to move abroad to Italy and transfer schools, it's no surprise that she had been chosen to be homecoming queen and was later given a role only after being there to visit the set. The movie she was an extra in was Barabas, released in 1961. She was encouraged frequently to pursue a career in film as well. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, she was discovered after only just walking onto the set. And I believe it was a Hemingway film. So it was kind of a big oh, deal. That makes me realize how beautiful she must have been. Right. For her to and just graceful. walk in. Yeah, for her to just walk in and snag a role. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's impressive. To its credit, her parents allowed Sharon to leave Europe to travel back to the U.S. in hopes of starting her career in film after this, around the time when she was only 14 years old. That is super young. So you can imagine, that's kind of scary, like starting yeah. your career at 14 years old. Yeah, and you know, child stars aren't necessarily treated the best. No, a lot of the time they end up being the ones that are the, the most abused. Yeah, they come out of it with a lot of damage, usually. Mm-hmm. A lot of trauma. A few years later, Sharon, who was about 19 at this time, had no professional training, but to her luck, she found a director willing to give her a chance. Martin Braznahoff, known for See No Evil with Mia Farrow, signed a seven-year contract with Sharon, which explains that she had a natural talent for it and expected that she would become a star and make that money back within the seven years anyways. The company was paying her $750 a month, which in today's standards would be about 7.3K. Oh, wow. So yeah, it was a pretty big paycheck she was getting. Oh, it sounds like it. That's awesome. Especially for a woman during her time. Yeah. And like with hardly, with no experience, you said? Yeah, no experience at all. That is insane. During her young life, she was just given roles and expected to perform them well and hope that they do. So yeah, she had no training. Most people do not have that type of opportunity. Right. That is incredible luck. They invested in her taking acting singing and dancing lessons for her career in this whole seven year period. Oh, wow. As Sharon took her work seriously, she dedicated herself to learning and being in the business because she generally felt like it was her passion and not because of her looks. In this documentary clip, she talks about where she can take her acting. Uh, I, I, I can't see myself doing Shakespeare or anything like that. I would love like comedy, but it takes so long. You know, comedy is one of the most difficult types of acting to do. It takes so long because you have to be so serious, and that's the funny thing about it. And I haven't had the experience at the moment, but I'm giving it a <laughs> She really is super beautiful. Yeah, during her time, she was sought after almost the majority of the time. She's super charismatic, too. She's very humble about her experience, which is something you can't even get these days. Exactly. She seems super raw and genuine, and I really like that in people. Sharon talks about having to do comedy and how difficult it might be and how she needs experience in order to do it. She later goes on to play a role in the sitcom series, The Beverly Hillbillies, as a secretary. The documentary mentions that Martin Raznahoff had disguised her in this role, though, to keep her a secret from the rest of the industry, which shows the value that he put on her if more companies start offering their own incentivized roles. Wow. He had her wear a black wig during her whole time as a secretary. That's kind of shady. (laughs) 
that's so malicious to hold somebody back or you know even just offer them more money like oh my god oh my goodness I think you're worth more than this here's a raise I feel like a lot of times the women in the industry were taken advantage of in that aspect especially at that time exactly finally in 1965 Sharon received her first big film role a film called Eye of the Devil with two other big names in Hollywood at the time considering it was her first big role the director had doubts that she could even manage the role as she did more opportunities and doors had opened for her wow so she just proved them all wrong she did time and time again actually that is so amazing so she just was naturally talented exactly she really can you imagine how far her career could have gone so sad it is sad and that's what you think about when you read her story is her opportunities that she could have had exactly Sharon's success was obvious in Los Angeles during this time, owning several homes and becoming even more popular in the industry. She was, around 1963, seeing Jay Sebring, a celebrity hairstylist, till later in her career where they had remained good friends. Jay Sebring was with her on the night of August 9th. That's ominous. More than one person was with her on the night that this happened, so it's very sad. Yeah, such a tragedy. That everybody happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time so sad and so Mm -hmm. senseless too Los Angeles was becoming a city almost free of the traditional conventions of society with the communes of the 60s and heavy drug use it was impossible to ignore the dark side of the city behind the glamour and fame you saw a ranch outside the city and a man named Charles Manson Sharon Tate later goes on to star in more films. Don't Make Waves was a response to the shift in the culture. The film was clearly targeted towards Sharon's sex appeal. In one scene, you get a direct shot of her butt as she's dragging a man from the beach. This was quite bold for the films during this time and probably had an impact on her image in the industry as well. Wow, that's really interesting. Yeah, once you see this, the couple scenes from the movie, you could tell that she is the sex symbol of the movie. Oh, I can only imagine she's beautiful. Right, she's typecast as the sexy blonde so another Marilyn Monroe then (laughs) you're right another Marilyn Monroe during her career she travels to London where she learned of a director who was casting his first film Dance of the Vampires in 1967 the director was Roman Polanski who was also skeptical like many others before him that she could fulfill the role she was given apparently his producer was asked by Roman to have Sharon's hotel room right next to his even though actors would stay in completely different hotels what in the hopes that they could meet Oh, that's so weird. (laughs) I know. It's kind of unprofessional. Yeah. Yeah. This is how their love story began. Rumors are that the film gives away their true feelings for each other and that some of it wasn't even them acting. Oh, wow. That's kind of cool. It's always cool to see like real chemistry on screen, you know? Yeah, to see what it's like when people are actually attracted to each other versus acting. Yeah, exactly. There are some romance movies where you can just tell the chemistry is not all there. Like you're not totally in love with the characters and their story. You're not convinced that it's real love. Exactly. They were seen together all the time. Not your typical couple, but they seemed happy and that was enough. London is where their love thrived and where they decided to marry. But Roman had to win over her family first in America. Roman was loved and accepted by her family and they married in 1968. The wedding was a huge media event. As many photographers as there were famous people. I can only imagine. If you were anybody, that's where you were. Yeah, absolutely. I can only imagine and just by her level of popularity by this time, I'm sure the press was all over it 
Roman and Sharon frequently hosted close friends and family. In the documentary, her sister describes it as an open door policy. People are used to not locking their doors and expecting nothing bad to come from it if nothing ever did before. Rumors circulated about drug field parties and orgies happening in their chateau. This comes after the tragedy as the media tries to speculate what caused the events on August 9th. So basically just trying to make excuses. Yeah, they're trying to figure out what could have caused this to happen or... I mean, it's the 60s. Like, all young people were doing at that time was drugs and having sex. So it'd be really easy to put that label on her. Yeah, you're right. Especially for celebrities because they have access to all that. It's easy to say that. And they're trying to come up with a reason that she got murdered. Right, like it was her fault. Yeah, so victim blaming. Exactly. (laughs) Interestingly enough, Roman's next film, Rosemary's Baby, was heavily criticized for its satanic scenes, which was also ironically his most successful film. The starring role was not Sharon, but Mia Farrow as well, a significance to later in the story. Ooh, foreshadow. Sharon's film roles start to show how difficult it was behind the scenes. Only her looks and sex appeal were being recognized as her talent. Ironically, her role in the film Valley of the Dolls, 1967, she plays an actress who isn't taken seriously because of her beauty. That seems pretty like, that seems pretty ironic. Yeah, it does, considering that's the kind of situation that she's in right now. Yeah, exactly. Or like even from the beginning, you know, she wasn't taken seriously immediately, but people still wanted her on their set because of how beautiful she was. So it was a lose-lose. It's like, did you want the role or, you know? Yeah, I imagine that role was therapeutic for her, you know? Right. She was made for it. Yeah, just in the sense that she got to play out something that actually happened to her. That's true. They did mention in the documentary that it kind of made her realize her value in the industry and how she really wanted to develop her skills as an actress rather than be known for how she looks. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, she stars next to Dean Martin in a James Bond spoof where her only role was to be a gorgeous accessory. So that's kind of an insult. Yeah. Yeah, that's rough. You're wanted for your beauty but at the same time it's like yeah Roman Polanski as a director working on different projects and Sharon on hers it was known that he was seeing other women as well oh no Roman admits in an autobiography that he had a sex tape with Sharon at some point which gives kind of a clue to his sexual deviancy at the time of his marriage to Sharon and what he did when they spent time apart that slimy man I know and you know he spent a lot of time abroad oh I'm sure as a director traveling I'm sure he was everywhere all the time exactly so it gave him the opportunity to be unfaithful oh absolutely especially in a time without cell phones and being able to contact each other at the drop of a dime you know <laughs> You're right exactly it was a different time back then you didn't really have access to that other person if they no. were halfway across the world yeah you d- really didn't Sharon was struggling with developing her skills as an actress because of the lack of integrity in the industry of giving more powerful roles to women while also having to figure out how to be happy in the situation she was in. Yeah, she definitely had a lot going on at this point. Yeah, she didn't know how to be happy. But also she just couldn't get a good role to, you know, hone her skills. Yeah, to really thrive in her career. It's really sad. Early 1969, Sharon found this happiness when she found out she was pregnant. Roman was confused at the beginning of their life 
life-altering event, but Sharon hit the ground running by looking for a stable home where she could have the family she wanted and probably didn't give Roman time to think otherwise. So is that like speculated that he didn't want to settle down in that manner and she just went for it? Yeah, I feel like he was kind of wishy-washy about having a baby in the first place considering he was having fun with his lifestyle. Yeah. And she was ready to settle down and be stable. Okay. They settled in a home above the mountains in Hollywood on Cielo Drive in Benedict Canyon. A beautiful home in view, which was fine considering she was hired for a film recently at a salary of 150000 which was more than what was paid for Rosemary's Baby, Roman's most successful film. Wow. So it's kind of like his life is taking a back seat. Yeah, and she's like shooting way past him. She also starred in a European film at the time, impressively while pregnant, and they had to hide her figure by using furniture and different angles. At least they were willing to do that. I find that amazing. A lot of people would be like, oh, no, you're pregnant. Sorry. Exactly. Well, apparently the director, all he had to do is take one look at her and he decided that she was fit for the role. So Not the first time that's happened to her. Exactly. So <laughs> she just has opportunities thrown into her lap pretty much. Yeah. Later on, the same director of the European film 13 Chairs told her that she could potentially have the baby at a clinic in Europe while awaiting the editing of the film. But Sharon insisted on having the baby in the U.S. and wanted Roman to return with her. Roman only had a few more days before he could return to be with her. In the documentary... They mentioned that Roman had a premonition that day that he would never see her again, which is eerie and heartbreaking at the same time that a single moment could change everything. I don't know how to explain it. I'd definitely want my fiance there for something that important. I understand. Like, I would choose my family over a project I'm working on. Exactly. Somebody, somebody else can take over the project. You can't tell me that nobody else can. Yeah. So I find it weird that he didn't go back with her and that he had a premonition also that he would not see her again. Like, that's unsettling. It's super unsettling. And wow. Yeah. I don't even know what to say. I guess he just had one of those gut feelings. Sharon came back to the U.S. to share in the love and excitement of the last few months of her pregnancy with her family, watching the moon landing together, and enjoying what was the last moments of togetherness for the Tate family. The ranch outside the city, Spawn Ranch, was the looming darkness of the cultural exploration and occupied by none other than Charles Manson of the Manson family, who were known to have killed for the purpose of shocking the world and eventually upending the notions of safety and the people who were truly evil. Very, very ominous. <laughs> I love it. Keep going. Through the chaos of the cult leader's madness of covering murders of his own accord and believing in delusional race wars, these victims suffered at the hands of four people who entered the home of Sharon and Roman Polanski on the night of August 9th, 1969. Can you imagine just not knowing what's coming your way? Like you're at home having a normal night, awaiting the, you know, awaiting going into labor to have your child and never getting to see it. Right. I mean, everything's peaceful until the that moment it's hard to imagine what I, these people I, went through i don't want to imagine it <laughs> right four individuals from the manson family entered the grounds and cut the phone lines they managed to get in through a window that was open and tragedy unfolded stephen parent who was just on the premises of the time jay sebring sharon's good friend and ex-boyfriend abigail folger and Wojciech Fragowski, who was currently staying at sharon's house were murdered by these four individuals it's incredibly sad that it wasn't just her, you know? What are the chances that all of those people would be at her home with her? 
when this tragedy struck? Surrounded by your friends or your family, people that you love, and it's shattered by these people that come into your home. Unexpected, had no inkling that this was going to happen. Just, it's crazy. And, you know, it's just horrible to think that even if they were to call for help, they cut the phone lines. Really? So there That's was... insane. Yeah. So, I mean, they, they made sure that nobody was going to have a way out. Sharon was still alive and begged for the life of her child. One of the killers, Susan Atkins, recalls she could have cared less for the life of her baby and telling her she was going to die and I have no mercy for you. Wow. She had been discovered with 16 stab wounds, all while she was currently nine months pregnant. A car came out to the driveway and I remember Tex getting out and without saying anything, there were gunfire sh shot. I was in the bushes and... Uh, That's when the young boy, Stephen Parent, was right, killed. was killed. In the right. car, outside. Right. The people in the house were all brought into the living room and tied up and then Tex came and helped me. And I was left to sit and watch Sharon Tate. And about that time, it, I can remember seeing people just scattering in different places and running in different places. And I was left sitting with Sharon Tate and she was talking to me. And I remember that I had absolutely, I could have, I felt nothing. I felt absolutely nothing for her um, as she begged for her life and for the life of her baby. Wow. I don't even know what to say about that. Yeah. And some of the comments on the video mention how she tries to use this small voice to try and make it seem like what she did wasn't as horrific as it was. Yeah. You know? Or just trying to give off an air of innocence. Exactly. It's disgusting. So crazy. Through listening to the cult members and Charles Manson himself, you can see the depth of the influence that this cult and this individual had. They had no remorse for the murders they committed. The to this day, there are people who probably still support him. That is a tragedy that comes with the importance of telling the story, making sure that Sharon Tate's life is celebrated and remembered, his story condemned and forgotten. The Manson family achieved their goals in making society see how evil people can be in a time where love and peace was peeking through the 60s. I agree that remembering Sharon Tate for who she was is far more important than spreading the story of her murder. And I only say that because I believe it was high school. I had this fascination with Charles Manson and I like read books on him, did book reports on him, you know, heard a lot of things about fans, fans. Yes, I said fans sending him letters and things in prison. And in a way, I kind of like idolized this crime, like, oh, my God, this cult is so crazy. And now looking back on that time, I'm like, why did I view it that way? I didn't see who was on the other side of that story. Mm -hmm. So retelling stories like this, it's very important, I think. So do we know why they chose to murder her? Well, it's quite complicated because before these murders happened, they were committing other murders as well. And what happened was that Charles Manson killed his drug dealer and he tried to cover it up and unfortunately ended up having one of his followers jailed. And so I think what he did was he tried to have that follower who was jailed killed and in order to cover up that killing, they went and did this killing and tried to then again put it on these racial wars that they were also trying to put the blame on. Be yeah, I mean, the whole cult was absolutely insane being pulled towards one thing or another, whether it was personal gain or their delusional yeah, racial it wars. It honestly just sounds like a lot of politics. That's insane. And so uh, taking the life of somebody as talented and beautiful, I mean, 
mean, I guess I don't understand what kind of message they were trying to send or if they really just picked her. Well, they also mentioned before that they wanted to commit crimes that would shock the world. And I feel like they really achieved that purpose with what they were doing in Los Angeles at that time. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. By committing these atrocities. Yeah. I would like to look farther into the Manson family again, just because I wonder what kind of influence Charles Manson truly had on his followers. I mean, I would too, because it just seems absolutely crazy. Yeah, that's the only word for it. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, if you caught our last episode on cults, you know, how dangerous and influential they can be. The impact on society and individuals who join them. This story lets us look at how far a cult can develop and eventually collide with societal norms, bring chaos and tragedy to a town unsuspecting, leaving families reeling in the wake of suddenly losing a loved one, that amongst us there's always uncertainty of the unknown. Yeah, I mean, that's what gives us anxiety, right? Yeah, plenty of it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, just to bring it back up to a lighthearted place because that, the Kurt Cobain story was a little dark but poor Sharon Tate and the hold that cults have over their followers and the way that they can make them do things you know I know we did a lot of talk about cults in our 3.5 episode well you know we've also talked about how a lot of these cults like to experiment in drug use like LSD and acid in order to take control of their members yeah exactly and we know that the Manson family was using hallucinogens for most of their time to So, you know, in the cult episodes, we talk about the issue of being vulnerable. And I feel like being on LSD or any other kind of mind altering substance could put you in a vulnerable place. It leaves you open to accepting things you normally wouldn't. Exactly. Wow. This has been so fun. (laughs) I've quite enjoyed this. And you know what? Maybe we should make it a segment, don't you think? I think that we should. It's been an amazing opportunity to just dig deep, you know, and have to have the honor to look into these cases and report them even though like i said at the beginning we know that these have been reported multiple times of course it's still very enjoyable to do it in our own way exactly hope we haven't made anyone too nervous out there thank you for listening if you're enjoying our show please give us a five-star rating wherever you're listening follow us on instagram at anxiety underscore podcast and facebook at anxiety for a peek at future episodes and special segments tune in next week for the second part of harry potter honoring the houses thank you to all of our listeners for checking us out if there's anything we can improve upon or anything you'd like to hear about from us please reach out to us at my blog we don't have a website for this podcast yet so stay tuned for an announcement regarding that go give our socials a follow we have links to them on my blog thevoiceofawallflower.com i do want to give you guys a bit of a heads up that my website has been experiencing some technical difficulties right now that i am working out and there's just some issues with navigation so please let me know if that doesn't improve our sources will also be on thevoiceofawallflower.com if you would like to check those out again thank you for listening and don't be anxious we will be back next week for another anxiety fueled episode cheers Cheers.